morning. Good to see you guys today. We have a uh, we have a bit of a heavy topic here today. In looking at these questions of the afterlife today, we're taking some focused time to look specifically at this thing called hell. And um, as we've been doing through this series, we're going to invite you to pull out your phones and text your questions in. However, today as we're going through the series, you're going to see the number come up repeatedly at different spots. So you don't have to wait till the end. We encourage you, if something I'm saying is striking you in the here and now, text your question in immediately and we'll get to these in, in somewhat real time and, and deal with them as we go. Here's what I'd like to do with hell. I'd like to get rid of it, but I can't do that. <laughs> what I'd really like to do with hell today is, is try to demythologize it. Because I think our perception of hell is too often shaped more by popular culture or historic fiction than it is actually what the Bible has to say. I say hell, and our minds probably run to things that have been imprinted into us via stained glass windows, liturgical art, Christian storybooks, Dante's Inferno, B-rated Halloween movies, and probably a half a dozen other things. And oftentimes these stand in a certain distinction to what the New Testament says about hell. Well, I'll tell you, I don't care what everyone else says about hell. I want to talk about what the Bible says about this place that we call hell. And in the process, maybe learn something about God, what his nature is really like, why the, the call to repentance is so important, and what to do about it in our midst. Now, let's start here. We call it hell. Why do we call it hell? Well, first, we don't call it hell because the Bible calls it hell. In fact, the Bible never calls it hell, despite the fact that various English translations will translate these Greek New Testament words into our English word hell. Our English word hell, just in case you're curious, actually comes from Norse mythology. Loki, and you know Loki if you've seen the Avengers or if you've seen Thor. Loki had three children, three children, and one of his children was named Hell, H-E-L. L. And he was this half-living, half-dead kind of monstrous brood who became the guardian of the underworld. And it was this concept that English translators drew on when they tried to take the words of Jesus. The New Testament talks about hell with three different words, never using the actual term H-E-L. And here they are. Hades, Tartarus, and Gehenna. So whenever you go into your New Testaments and you see a translation that says hell, one of these three words are standing behind it. Now Jesus will use Hades a lot, John will use Hades a lot, and Hades comes from Greek mythology. It's the, uh, the god of the underworld in Greek mythology, but also becomes representative of the underworld in Greek mythology. It's a gloomy, dark, dismal place where everyone goes, whether righteous or unrighteous, and it's just not good times down there. It isn't quite the fire and brimstone that we imagine in Christian circles of hell oftentimes, but nonetheless it is not a pleasant place. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus seems to have no problem taking a different cultural view of what this afterlife underworld place is in a way that might connect with his hearers to describe it. So when Jesus is telling a parable about a rich man and a man named Lazarus and they both die, and it says that the rich man goes down to hell and Lazarus goes up to heaven or Abraham's side, what Jesus actually says is that this rich man goes to Hades. Now the second term you'll see the New Testament used that gets translated hell is Tartarus. It is not a sauce. 
<laughs> Tartarus, interestingly, also comes from Greek mythology, and Tartarus is considered the lowest level of hell. So if hell's not bad enough, there's more sub-basements in Greek thought. And this is considered the lowest place for the worst of the worst. And in one very significant passage that I'll get to momentarily, the New Testament writers use Tartarus as the image that they want to impress on our minds to think about what this place is. And finally, the third is called Gehenna. Gehenna. And this is by and far the most popular and most common word standing behind hell in your English Bibles, and this is the one that Jesus uses more than anywhere else. We actually have a real-life, not-made-up picture of Gehenna. Do you believe that? Here it is. It's right there. Gehenna is just simply two Aramaic words slapped together. Valley of Henna, or Valley of Hinnon. When Jesus would talk about hell, what he would use is a metaphor, and the metaphor was simply the Valley of Hinnon. Well, what is the Valley of Hinnon? Well, it is this valley you're seeing right here outside the walls of Jerusalem. And what made this valley so distinct in Jesus' day that he'd go, man, that's hell. I mean, I look at it, I don't want to live there. Okay, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't really look like hell to me. How about you? An eternity there might not be the best real estate in the world, but it doesn't seem too awful. But in Jesus' day, this was the garbage dump. And the day before you would haul your waste 20 miles out, 30 miles out, because that's a pain when you're doing it with horses and donkeys and wagons, what you would do is you'd simply take it to a big pit outside your city wall, it's far enough away, and all the sewage and all the waste and all the trash would be dumped out here. There's one artist's rendition that I came across that tries to picture what it might have looked like in Jesus' day. As you're coming into Jerusalem, Breathe from the left, not from the right, because the trash heap down there is starting to fester and mold and stench up on a good hot Middle Eastern day as all the city's waste is festering in the valley of Hinnon. And so what they would do with first century waste management technology is they would go out and they would pour pitch all over the top of the trash. And then they would light the pitch on fire in an attempt to burn off the waste and the smell and the decay that was festering in this pit. So imagine a garbage pit. You have maggots. It's moldy and nasty. The stench is horrific, and there's pitch and sulfur smell just burning 24-7 as they seek to try to deal with this human waste problem that continues to fester. Is it any wonder that Jesus refers to hell as the place where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies? So it's these three terms or these three images or metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe this place it refers to as, or that we refer to as, hell. Now, what is hell? Questions, by the way, to 815-314-0363 as we go. What is hell? I mean, what is this place? I'm not talking the Valley of Hinnon, but I mean, what is the, the metaphor of the Valley of Hinnon or Gehenna meant to represent? Well, Second Peter will put it this way. He says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, the lowest level using that metaphor here, but sent them to Tartarus, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. What is hell? It's a prison. In fact, it's the supermax of prison for demons. 
Hell was never intended by God for you and me. Hell was never designed as a place to send you and me. Hell was designed as the supermax of prisons for the spiritual forces of this world who have rebelled against God and who seek to raise violent havoc among the people of God to keep them safe from wreaking havoc on humanity. Why is hell so bad? Because it has escalated in security to a supernatural level for supernatural beings never intended for you or me. Now, it's interesting that when the Bible talks about hell, it talks about hell in terms of image, metaphor, picture. You'll be hard-pressed to open your Bibles and find a definition of hell or, or a list of like characteristics of hell that you can check off. Rather, Jesus seems to rely more on the imagination to give images of what it might be like. But it's important to remember that when you use metaphor, pushing metaphor too far is never its intention. Let me show you what I mean. There are four main metaphors that the New Testament uses for hell. Fire, where the worm never dies darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me read to you two passages here today. The first is from Mark, and this is what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We've talked about this metaphor already. Matthew has another way of putting it. He says this. He said, when Jesus had heard what was going on, he was amazed and he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now what I'd like you to do is, is just run with these metaphors for a while and see something that's occurring in the biblical description of hell. If I was to say fire, and we think of hell as fire, and the fiery furnace or whatever kind of uh, mental picture we want to put around fire, I'm sure that certain images are starting to pop into your mind right now. You're probably seeing a cavernous place. It's probably made up of like jagged rocks of some sorts and it's underground and there's pits of fire everywhere with maybe a, a devil with a pitchfork and a curly tail, you know, and we, we got the whole picture going. But I bet that in that vision of hell with fire, you can see. You can see what's around you. You can see who's there before you. You can see the torment of the place. Uh, agreed? How does that square with darkness? How does this image of fire, which seems to bring with it light and visibility, square with the idea of being in pitch black darkness? Because another way that the Bible describes hell is a place of darkness. And those of you who have a fear of darkness or know what it's like to be in crippling, oppressive darkness where you can go like this and you can't even see your hand on your face, where the darkness feels heavy that it seems to push in on you, it's two very different visual connotations isn't it? 
And I think the encouragement or the, the insight of the New Testament when we think about hell is to not root it literally in any one of these four images, but rather to describe these, to use these things as descriptors for a condition of what hell truly is and truly is like. It's kind of like a way of saying it's terrible. Imagine your worst fears. Imagine your worst nightmares. Imagine your worst misery. And the Bible seems to use different ways to describe that very thing. Now, I want to look at this last one with you just for a moment, where it says it will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I'd like to unpack this metaphor with you just for a moment, because it takes on a certain significance in how we wrestle with hell that I think goes contrary to what most people expect. Now, weeping. We know what weeping is. Weeping is easy to imagine. We have wept. We have seen people weep. It has with it a certain sense of, of brokenness, desperation, despair. But gnashing of teeth. What's this one? Gnashing of teeth. I'm curious, will you gnash your teeth at me? Okay, I got some people over here doing this at me. <laughs> which, is, which is utterly weird, I'm just sorry, it just really was. How are we to imagine gnashing of teeth? See, for many people, I think gnashing of teeth takes on a connotation of clenched pain. I am in such suffering that I'm like this. But is, clashing, but is gnashing of teeth better expressed like this? You ever have a cat that comes up to you and goes, See, this is how we know cats are of hell. <laughs> Throughout the Bible, weeping and gnashing of teeth is not a metaphor for pain. In fact, what you see opposite through the Bible is that gnashing of teeth is a metaphor for hatred, contempt, defiance, and enmity. So to gnash your teeth at someone is to hate someone. To gnash your teeth at someone is to defy someone. To gnash your teeth at someone is to say, I would shred you with these if you came any closer. Which puts an interesting spin on what's going on with the people in this place that we call hell. Are they clenching their teeth in pain? Or are they hissing out in defiance to the God who came to save them? And depending on which of these two paths you go will lead you to radically different conclusions about how you view the God of the universe who invented this place that we call hell. Now I'd like you to pull out your Bibles because what I'd like to do is really get at the heart and soul of what hell is. We looked at the names, we've looked at the metaphors, but at its essence, what is hell? Romans chapter 1, please. And we're going to begin right around verse 18. Romans 1 verse 18. I'm going to throw one slide up here, but I want you to see it more in depth. This is what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What is hell? Fundamentally, we know what hell is. Hell is judgment. Hell is, hell is judgment by God, and then we can start going from there. 
And it says the wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness. And it goes on to say, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And look at this kicker. So that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. There's a progression here that I don't want you to miss. Romans says that God's wrath is being revealed against the wickedness and the godlessness of humanity. But it doesn't say how that wrath is being revealed, does it? Instead, Romans seeks to first answer the question, why? And what it goes on to say is that God's wrath is being revealed not because God is a sadist, not because God is short-tempered, not because God is arbitrary, but because human beings suppress the truth and take what is clearly known to them, what God has shown them. What is known to them, whether you have a Bible or not, has taken what he's, what he's built into the fabric of this universe, what he's taken and built into the fabric of who we are, what he's created inside the human condition to know right from wrong. We've taken this thing that God has made self-evident, but instead traded it for futile things, for darker things. And so it says that we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they chose not to glorify him or to thank him or to recognize him. Hell is not a place filled with people who never heard or never had a chance. The judgment of God is being revealed against those, it says, to those who have deliberately chosen their own way in defiance of the living God. And after describing why, Romans moves to how. How is the wrath of God being revealed? And you can look at verse 24 in there, you can look in the last sentence there, but hone in on this because it's significant. How is the wrath of God being revealed? It says simply, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God just said, if that's the way you want to choose, I will let you go that way. If this is how you want to be, I will let you have your way. And instead of forcing them back, wrestling them back, pinning them down, it simply says God handed them over to that which they <coughs> desired. See, last week we were talking about heaven. And we asked a question, where is heaven at? Can I get in the ship and if I hit the right trajectory and figure it out, actually launch and with enough power and enough time finally hit heaven? And the fundamental answer is no, because heaven is not a piece of real estate that God happened to stumble across and set up a house at. What makes heaven is where God is at. 
because if God is the source of life and goodness and joy and power, then it stands to reason that the closer you are in of, into proximity of God, the closer you are sharing or immersed in goodness and life and joy and glory and power. Which by extension says, the farther you get away from God, the farther you retreat from the things that emanate from God, like goodness and life and peace and joy and glory and power, and find yourself going into things that are the antithesis of God and what he emanates, like suffering and pain and misery and despair and agony and darkness and death. Which basically asks the fundamental question, what is hell? It's separation from God. And by being separate from God, you are separate from the things he has created that we call good in this world. And so fundamentally what hell becomes is a retreat from the presence of God. The retreat of people who want nothing to do with God and therefore choose a place as far away from him. It's fascinating to me because you would think in a place of such misery, in a place of such pain, in a place of such agony and despair and darkness, people would cry out to God. I'm with you. I would think that too. But the Bible seems to picture it another way. If you'd like to see this firsthand, flip to Revelation chapter 16. I'm going to start right around verse 4. It says, the third angel poured out his bowl. Don't worry, you can flip. You'll catch up. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard an angel in charge of the water say this, God, you're just in these judgments. You're completely justified in this. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For these have shed the blood of your people and your prophets and have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now hone in that verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. It feels like hell, doesn't it? They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. It sounds like the metaphors of hell, doesn't it? People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent because of what they had done. We learned early on in our household that despite what you read in the books and despite common wisdom you get, with our children there became, at an early toddler age, on occasion, a necessity to spank. We, we, we learned this the hard way as parents, that having a reasoned conversation with your two-and-a-half-year-old about why you should not touch the hot stove doesn't really get you that far. Having a reasoned conversation with your three-year-old about why it's important to heed the wisdom of mom and dad doesn't really get that far when they're going, I want this right now. And so we learned that pain could be a motivator. That short and temporary pain could alleviate greater pain and misery in the future by the way the shock could correct. I read Revelation and I almost get this idea. 
That God is seeing these people and they are defying him and they are plunged in, in hatred and enmity towards him and he's doing everything to get their attention, even sending his own son. How many ways from Tuesday do I got to tell you guys you are heading towards a path away from me of darkness and misery and pain? And you see these images of God going to any lengths to get their attention, even causing pain. And it's fascinating to me that those who are in pain that God is trying to grab hold of would rather relish in their pain than turn towards God and the correction he is trying to bring. Is hell filled with people that are merciless victims in the hand of an angry God? Or is hell filled with people who are gnashing their teeth, saying, I would rather live in darkness and misery far from you than have anything to do with you? O oh God of the universe. The New Testament seems to indicate it's the latter. Because the one theme throughout the Bible is that God does not want you to go to hell. He never intended it for you, and he doesn't want you to go there. But God gives us the freedom. The freedom to choose our own way. And with our choices come consequences. Because freedom isn't really actually freedom if the consequences of those freedom don't come to play. And so God says, I'll hand you over. But it's not God's intended way. I think of Adam and Eve in the very beginning when they fall into sin. They used to walk with God in the cool of the day. The serpent deceives them. They eat this food. They realize what they've done. And it says they hid. It says God comes looking for them. And, and he says one of these lines that is so potent if you think about it. He calls out to the man. Where are you? Where are you going? Why are you hiding? Why are you rejecting me? Why would you rather stay far from me in a hell-like existence rather than come to me? And Adam answered, I heard you and I was afraid. So I hid. Hell is not God retreating from you. Hell is you retreating from him. And the Bible seems to say that there are some who would rather choose their own way and live in spite and contempt with gnashing of teeth for eternity than be with him. So I'd like you, if you have not started already, to start texting your questions in to 815-314-0363. That's 815-314-0-F-O-F. And let's see what kind of questions we have here today. I have often heard that this is heaven on earth, which I personally do not believe. I think I believe that this is really hell on earth. Thoughts. I heard an amazing maxim and I've really come to buy it. For a believer, this is the closest thing to hell that you will ever see. For an unbeliever, this is the closest thing to heaven that you will ever see. Matthew 7.13, the gate to destruction is wide. Is that the gate to hell? It is the gate to hell, but don't limit it to only an end times view of hell alone. 
Because in many ways, as, as the kingdom of God starts now, hell begins now as well. And, and being close to God or distant from God is not something that just happens matter of fact when you die or matter of fact at eternity. It is a trajectory and a choice that begins here today. So when Jesus says the gate to destruction is wide, is that the gate to hell? Yes, in the broadest sense imaginable. That those who walk the broad road now are already walking the road of hell, which will continue to be experienced more and more throughout the future. Is the road to hell paved with good intentions? Sadly, often it is. Can you leave hell? And I'm going to take these two back to back. Is there a devil in hell? Let me do the last first. The Bible indicates there is. That there is a devil in hell. But don't understand the devil in hell as being the warden or the taskmaster or the torturer. Understand the devil being in hell as being in solitary in spiritual supermax, just like everyone else. Hell is a prison for the divine. For the supernatural might be a better way of phrasing that. And so it says in Revelation that the hell, or that Satan, is locked into the abyss. And that he will be released for a short time before the end comes, but after that's done, that hell and all of them will be thrown into this place called the lake of fire. So yes, the devil is there, but in punishment, not in glory. Now, to the one that came before it, can you leave hell? It is a fascinating discussion, and let me try to phrase it this way. C.S. Lewis once wrote a book, a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Have you heard of them? I encourage you to read in the proper ordering of the book, not the schlock ordering they give you today, the last book in the series called The Last Battle. Thank you, English teachers. In The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis gives a picture of what eternity in hell is like, and he does it through image and metaphor and fantasy. And there's this fascinating thing where he comes to the dwarves, Aslan, the Jesus figure of the books, he comes to the dwarves, and the dwarves are notorious for rejecting Aslan, hating Aslan, usurping Aslan, subverting Aslan. And he comes before them and he invites them to the green place, the place where they can go deeper and higher into the true land of the king. And he invites the dwarves in and they reject him. He invites the dwarves in and they defy him. He, he invites the dwarves in and they gnash their teeth. He sets a feast before them and says, look, I'm not out to get you. I love you. I want you to come with me despite the fact that you've rejected me. Instead of embracing it, every time they, t as the book puts it, taste the finest of wines, it tastes like ash to their teeth. Every time they eat the most sumptuous of meal, it tastes like a wonderful thing. And they say, look, he's trying to poison us. He's trying to get us. Don't trust him. C.S. Lewis ends the scene with the door to heaven remaining open. But he looks to those who are looking at the dwarves, who are lamenting, why would they choose this misery for eternity? And simply says this, the door stood open and the door stands open for them to repent at any time. But the reality is they never will. The reality is they hate me more than they hate their misery. They love themselves more than they love my path for them. And they would rather, as Revelation puts it, gnaw their tongues in agony. Is it possible to leave hell? Well, Satan does. Theoretically, it might be possible, from one perspective, to imagine that God's salvation extends forever, and that people on either side of eternity could repent. But the reality is, the Bible seems to indicate they don't. And not because God has severed them off, but because that is the end result 
of severing yourself from his spirit and wanting anything to do with him. I get that hell is being apart from God, but it is also a literal place, right? Well, it is a, I'll put it this way, it is a literal mode of existence. And how that existence looks in the fabric of space and time, I don't know. Just like heaven might not be a specific piece of real estate that stands 50 feet by 100 feet on this kind of plot, you know, in this sector of the universe, neither do I think is hell. But is it a literal existence? You, you, you bet it is. You bet it is. If you believe and have good intentions with God, but have doubts, will you go to hell? Doubts do not damn you. Doubts do not send you to hell. Jesus said doubts, do you know that? Doubts do not send you to hell. Rejection of God and His grace sends you to hell. Whether that be an outward rejection saying, God, I want nothing to do with you, or an internal rejection that positions yourself and hardens yourself against Him. Does God still love those who are in hell? Yeah. He does. God loves everything he's made. I'm even inclined to believe that God loves Satan himself. Imagine how big God's heart breaks. Like a parent who watches their child go into drugs and crime and defy everything that their parents have poured into them? Does that parent stop loving that child? No way. God's heart breaks for those who are in hell. One of your verses mentioned the angels waiting for judgment in this prison of hell. How does this fit with your timeline from last week? Is it forever or temporary like heaven? Just like heaven is temporary now, hell is temporary now. And at the resurrection, just as there will be a resurrection of the dead and some coming to new Eden and the new heavens, new earth, there is also a resurrection of the dead where the judgment go into what Revelation describes as the lake of fire. Do people who are not baptized automatically go to hell? No, they do not. No, no way. It's common urban legend in a lot of Christian circles, and it's been propagated in all kinds of nasty kind of ways. You are saved because of the grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Grace through faith is necessary for salvation. And if you're sitting here today and you've lost a baby and you're afraid out of your mind because they died before they were baptized, because you had a miscarriage and they never had a chance because you had an abortion and it never happened. It's not like somehow they, they missed their chance and found some loophole and, and, and God goes, shoot, what do I do about them? God extends his grace deep and wide. Take heart in that today. And that's it for today. I'd like to encourage you to two books if you want to wrestle more with this thing called hell. For those of you who approach God through story, through image, 
through metaphor. There's a phenomenal book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Had a story once of someone who picked this up and was reading it, and their spouse got freaked out because they saw this book laying on the... <laughs> it's a book about hell. It's one that I think will bring insight to you in amazing ways. For those of you who like to, to approach the subject more, more academically, who like to take the Bible verses and wrestle out what do they mean and what are the implications and how do they fit together, there's an amazing book out there called Four Views on Hell, where four different scholars taking different positions argue with each other, each making their own case, then challenging the other. Again, it's a phenomenal read that'll open your eyes. If I can leave you with one thing today, it's that hell is real but that God does not want you to go there. But he leaves the choice to you. He leaves you to love him and accept him or reject him on your own accord. And he respects your decision. If it scares you, if you hear it, if you're worried, throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. And know what you experience in this lifetime is the closest reality it will ever be for you. If your heart burns for someone you love, who you think is far from God, and you're afraid of what their destiny might mean, take that fear seriously. Get on your knees. Start praying for them. Don't delay. Start helping them to see how much God loves them and what the good news of Jesus really means. So I'd like to invite you to rise. We're going to come and commune today from the one who gave his life so that we will never have to face hell.